most of what I already said. We are in How to Destroy Church series, and uh, we will be in Hebrews next week. But uh, in this series, we're looking at individual issues that, if allowed to, to fester and grow in the life of a local church, if left unchecked, they can result in churches uh, having their lampstands removed, as the book of Revelation talks about. In fact, having churches be closed for good. Um, these issues are issues that we want to specifically look at that can hurt the life and vitality of a church. Thus far, Pastor Chris has looked at three issues in this series. He's looked at the issues of conflict, anger, and communication. And today, and it may have been spoiled already on the screens, uh, we're going to be looking at the issue of worldliness. Worldliness. But before we do that, let's pray and ask uh, God to be with us here this morning. Father, you have, you've reached down to us through your Son, and you have given us new uh, pleasing and holy desires uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask uh, this morning, as we open your word, uh, that you would fan into flame uh, those desires and that we would see your Son more clearly. Amen. Worldliness is a topic that is often misunderstood and misdefined. Uh, there are some who would define worldliness as stepping outside of a, an assumed external holy way of living. To quote one pastor, if you listen to music with a certain beat, dress in fashionable clothes, watch movies with a certain rating, or indulge in certain luxuries of modern society, surely you must be worldly. On the other hand, there are those who reject any sort of the arbitrariness that I just mentioned and fear that legalism is the, really the only result and is inevitable when you even dare to broach the subject of worldliness. So, don't even bring it up if you're on that side. Lord willing, we're not going to fall into either side of, of these ditches here this morning. And we're going to see that worldliness is primarily not about external things, but really about what's going on in the deep recesses of our hearts and of our minds. Before we jump into our main text this morning, I want to offer you a definition of the word worldliness, and it should be on the screen. You're going to notice it's pretty lengthy, and we're going to be revisiting it throughout this sermon. But worldliness is defined as the condition that characterizes those who live in such a way as to suggest that the world and its desires are to be the primary purpose and aim of life, the spiritual being considered secondary or altogether unimportant. Let me read that again. Again, it's, it's, it's lengthy. The condition that characterizes those who live in such a way as to suggest that the world and its desires are to be the primary purpose and aim of life, the spiritual being considered secondary or altogether unimportant. Again, we'll be revisiting that definition, so if you didn't have a chance to take a screenshot or, or write all that down in your notes, we're going to be coming back to it throughout the sermon. But with that definition in mind, let's go ahead and turn to our main text here this morning. It's found in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. If you're using the ESV hardback Bible in front of you, that's on page 1,211. As you turn there, 1 John 2 and 1 John as a whole was written by the Apostle John. So in addition to writing a gospel narrative of Jesus' life and writing the revelation that he received while in exile on the island of Patmos, 
John also wrote three small letters. And when I say small, I mean small. There's a total of seven chapters for all three letters combined. But even though they have brevity, there is much that we can uh, take out of it and much that is um, uh, useful for us. So we'll be looking at a small passage from the first letter. And if you're there, we're going to go ahead and start looking at verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. So even though this is a topical sermon, uh, we, it, it doesn't really excuse us from expositing the meaning of the text and, and pulling out what God would have us to understand about worldliness. So we're going to do just that. We're going to look at these, these three verses, verses 15 through 17. So in verse 15, we have what I like to call a negative commandment. So instead of telling us to do something, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us to not do something. To be obedient to this kind of a command is to not do this. And so John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world. Now, it should be clear from the greater testament of Scripture as to what John is saying here and what he's not saying. So he is not saying that we should hate the world in such a way that contradicts our love for neighbor, right? We as Christians are called to have agape love towards the world, especially to those who are our enemies. Love your enemies, right? Those are the words of Jesus himself. And when we love like that, we are really imaging our Father, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So John's not talking about that when he says, do not love the world. We want to be characterized and filled with a love for the world in that respect. But there is a way in which we can love the world that the love of the Father is not in us. The love of the Father is not proven to be in us. There's a way in which shows that neither does the Father covenantly love us, nor do we love him. And this is the love that John is getting at, or the lack thereof. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. God would have us see this morning that we should not live in such a way that suggests that our affections, our loves, are infatuated with the world and its desires. If your life is characterized by such worldliness, a such love for the world, then John would have us be warned that a person who does that is not a Christian. And those are not my words. These are John's words and the Holy Spirit's words. The love of the Father is not in them. John does not mince words here. The stakes are high for someone who is living in a condition of, of worldliness, who is not being obedient to this negative commandment of not loving the world and the things of the world. But what does it mean to be worldly? 
right? If we want to be obedient to this command, we, we ought to know what it means to be worldly, right? How do we avoid being worldly? So I've already offered a definition of worldliness. Again, I told you we'd come back to it. The condition that characterizes those who live in such a way as to suggest that the world and its desires are to be the primary purpose and aim of life, the spiritual being considered secondary or unimportant altogether. But now, as we move into verse 16, John is going to unpack for us this definition and peel back the layers. He wants us to avoid the world and the things of the world, but really, what are these things? What are these things? What characterizes the world? And he gives us three that we're going to look at this morning. It's really great when the scriptures exposit themselves. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's spend some time here this morning looking at each one of these. So first, the desires of the flesh. This is a, phrase, a word that we use a lot in Christian circles. We talk about the flesh a lot. And the flesh is the Bible's way of talking about the indwelling part of us that desires to live apart from God and his commandments. It's the part that wants what we want, the part that wants autonomy from God. When I'm talking about my flesh, Brett's flesh, it's the part that says, live according to yourself, Brett. Live according to yourself and for yourself. This is the flesh. For the Christian, though, this is just a part of us. Praise God. Amen. The flesh is just a part of us. It is indwelling nonetheless, but it is just a part and daily, if you're a Christian, it is being crucified and being put to death. But for the world, flesh is not just indwelling. It is all in all. The flesh is all in all for one who is in the world. And John says that the desires of the flesh are part of what it means to be worldly. And as Christians, we are to avoid these desires at all costs. Remember that negative commandment. We are not to love the world or the things in the world. Now the Bible speaks of many places in scripture about what the desires of the flesh are, but perhaps nowhere more clearly are they listed than in Galatians 5. And this will be on the screen as well. We'll start in verse 16 of Galatians 5. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Desires of the flesh lead to works of the flesh, which lead to damnation, not inheriting the kingdom of God. It's Paul's way of saying the love of the Father is not in them, not inheriting the kingdom of God. The world lives in such a way that they, that the world desires something and then carries it out. We do what we want. The world does what it wants. 
It tries as best as possible to carry out its desires. Human nature apart from God desires to live apart from God. Human nature apart from God desires to live apart from God. And this list that Paul offers is by no means exhaustive. You can see Matthew 15 for a list that Jesus offers us. You can see Romans 1, Colossians 3 for similar lists. But the point is that the desires of the flesh are opposed to God. They are opposed to him. They're they're what fallen man wants. It's what humanity lusts after. The Bible refers to these sometimes as worldly passions. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Secondly, John looks at what he calls the desires of the eyes. So here, John is zooming in further on the desires of the flesh to look at that which we look upon with our eyes, with these two things that that God has given us. And when we think of the desires of the eyes, for some of us, the sin of sexual lust may quickly come to mind. We we think of the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So the eye sees something that the heart wants and unholy desire is fed by our physical sight. This is the fallen nature of man where our physical parts of our body actually cause us to sin more. Peter writes that, our eye, that, that the world's eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. But the desires of the eyes here in, in verse 16 are not exclusively dealing with sexual lust. Remember, Eve, the first woman, she was betrayed by her eyes also. When she looked upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and considered it, Scripture says, a delight to the eyes. So we need to give a broader definition to what the desires of the eyes are, which includes sexual lust, but is not limited to that alone. I've already given you one definition from my mind. I'm going to give you a definition from someone else's mind here. I think one theologian is helpful here in suggesting that the desires of the eyes refer to the tendency, this is really key, the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real values. It's the tendency to chase what looks good without concern for whether or not it's pleasing to God. The tree looked really good to Eve, but eating of it, was not pleasing to the Lord. That man or woman may be very pleasing to the eyes, but lusting after them and desiring them in an unholy way is not pleasing to God. The eyes are an amazing feat of God's creation. There is no greater camera with greater megapixels than your own two eyes. But in fallen humanity, the eyes are a conduit that powers the desires of the flesh. And so John, again, would have us not love the world or the things of the world. So we have the desires of the flesh. We have the desires of the eyes. And we move into this last phrase, the pride of life. 
Finally, John wants us to see that the world is characterized by the pride of life. Now, there is some disagreement among Bible translators as how best to translate the Greek here. Some believe that the Greek to be talk, is talking about this general boasting in oneself, this, this general pride of life. But others believe the Greek to really be talking about a very specific type of boasting. Very specific type. If you're using the ESV this morning, some of your copies may have a little footnote next to the word life. And that footnote reads, pride in possessions. Pride in possessions. Now the Greek word bios, where we get the word biology, bios, bios, can really just mean material life, having to do with life, pertaining to life. But there's many times in the New Testament where this word is used to not refer to life itself, but to the things that support life. To the things that support life. You'll see this in many different parts of Scripture. We have a very similar word in English, the word livelihood. Livelihood. That which supports life. And given this use of the word for bios and other parts of Scripture, including one chapter later, we're not going to look at it this morning, but in 1 John 3, John says, if anyone has the world's goods, that's that Greek word bios there, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Given that, I think it's reasonable to say that the pride of, of life that John is referring to is a specific pride in, in one's possessions. It's a pride in what one has. It's a pride in his livelihood. It's the security and, and comfort that one perceives to have as a as a result of what they have. It's a perceived lack of any need for God because this person believes they have everything they need already. It is this pride of life. This pride of life is that which characterizes the world. Remember, to go back to it again, our definition this morning for worldliness the condition that characterizes those who live in such a way as to suggest that the world and its desires are to be the primary purpose and aim of life, the spiritual being considered secondary or unimportant altogether. This last part is talking about this arrogance, this arrogance that material possessions, this pride of life, the things that we have, this arrogance that is produced in the world that looks at the spiritual, namely God himself, and considers him to be secondary or, increasingly in our modern age, altogether unimportant. Altogether unimportant. It's the belief, hey, I have everything I need in this life. I don't need God. This is the reason so many struggle to look at Christianity and refuse to repent because they don't see a need. They don't recognize they have a need. Because their love for the world has convinced them that they have everything they need. It's an impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. And really, it, you may be thinking, oh, that sounds like materialism. Because, well, that's because that's what materialism is. Materialism is a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual things. 
Some of you may have talked in your evangelistic efforts to someone who may call themselves a secular materialist. And really, someone who says that they're that has really just taken this pride of life and taken this idea of materialism, and they've followed it to its furthest conclusion. Materialistic thoughts giving birth to this philosophy of materialism that enslaves so many in our postmodern world, that, that posits that nothing exists outside of the, of the material realm. This is materialism at its core. It's not just saying the spiritual is unimportant or secondary. A materialist is saying the spiritual doesn't exist. Now, this is the pride of life to its furthest conclusion. Someone who would say something like that. And so John is really calling us to steer clear of this pride of life. Again, love not the world or the things in the world. So these three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, are the things of the world that John would have us avoid. And as we move along this morning, I want to look at a story, a story of a church Now, the church is not immune to these kind of thoughts. 1 John is being written to Christians, not to the world. The church is not immune to these kind of thoughts. If you survey church history over the last 2,000 years, it will reveal countless times where the church indeed did love the world and the things of it. Times where the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and, and the pride of life characterized the church more than a love for God. And I want to look at an example, a story of a church that we know. It's a church at Laodicea. Laodicea, Laodicea Church. And what did Jesus say about this specific church? It's in Revelation 3. It should be on the screen. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It seems that the church at Laodicea had become infected by the worldliness of the city in which it was planted. According to the Roman historian Tacitus in AD 60, there was a giant earthquake that really just ravaged the the region there in Asia. And of all the cities where imperial disaster relief aid was extended, Laodicea was the only city who said, no thanks, we can do it ourselves. It's as if FEMA went to them and they're like, "We, we can help you. And they're like, no thanks, we got this. Now, Laodicea was a thriving commercial center in Asia and yet it deemed itself to be self-sufficient. And it seems that the church at Laodicea had really begun to believe this as well. What, what are, again, what are Jesus' words? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. It seems that this church had believed the lie of Laodicea, the lie of the world, that that says that man actually doesn't need God because worldliness is sufficient. 
Laodicea church did not see itself as pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's really interesting, if you look at all the churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation, of which there are seven, Laodicea is the only church where he has nothing commendable to say. Nothing. Of all, all the other churches, he has some things that are, they're doing good and some things that they need to repent of and, 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 uh, and pursue the Lord in. But Laodicea, there's nothing good to be said. It's this worldly church. It's this church of Laodicea. And it's this church that leads us to, to the main thrust of this sermon. How does worldliness destroy a church? How does worldliness destroy a church? Remember, that's what our series is, how to destroy a church. And so how does it do that? How does a coddling of worldly lusts and desires and hopes and goals, how can that be the undoing of not just any local church, but Hagerstown Church? So I want to spend some time looking at what I'm calling the fruit of worldliness, the fruit of worldliness. There's going to be five, five uh, points that I'm going to, to make, make here. They're going to be on the screen. Now, they're not in any particular order, so don't ascribe any necessary importance to the order in which I, I give these. But this is the fruit of worldliness for a church that coddles uh, worldly thoughts. Number one, a worldly church abandons its gospel work. A worldly church abandons its gospel work. Gospel work is kingdom work, right? It's, it's, it's building God's kingdom. It's proclaiming the good news to the nations. But a church that has, lured away, has been lured away by the, the world ceases to do any meaningful kingdom work. Notice that I say meaningful. And, and this really does make sense when you look at a worldly church because the gospel speaks to a heavenly calling, a heavenly dwelling, a spiritual need. Why would a worldly church be concerned with things like evangelism? If a, if a church believes their hope is in this world, why call people to a hope that is not? A church that has placed its hope in the world has really no power to call people to look up because this church is looking down. There's a tragic story in the New Testament of a man named Damos. You may be familiar with this, with this individual. It's tragic because he was a fellow worker with Paul for the furtherance of God's kingdom. We read about him amongst other people who are working on the front lines to minister the gospel to those in need. And yet, at the end of Paul's life, as he's giving final instructions to his protege, Timothy, he writes these words in 2 Timothy 4. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Damos, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This man, Damos, abandoned Paul. He abandoned the work at hand. He had been a fellow worker. He had been working hard, spreading the gospel, preaching the good news, traveling to countless cities, I would imagine, but because of his love with the world, he abandoned the work. He left. He went to Thessalonica. We don't know what his love of the world was. We don't know what of the desires of the flesh or the eyes or the pride of life drew him away from the work of the kingdom. But yet, 
we know that, that that's what happened. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that someone who was running so well would then turn away because he was in love with this present world. May that not be said of Hagerstown Church as we strive to build God's kingdom here, not only in Hagerstown, but around the world. Amen. Number two, a worldly church loses its distinctiveness. A worldly church loses its distinctiveness. Now, the church is to be distinct from the world, as, as Israel was distinct from the surrounding nations that it went into. And Paul says this, really, in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul's really riffing on this point that the church is to be distinct from the world. The church must not be part of that definition of worldliness. When a church starts to look like the world, it loses what distinguishes it. Ask yourselves this. What reason is there for a worldly person to come to a worldly church when the same things are offered everywhere else? What reason do they have to come through these doors? Worldliness blurs the line between the church and the world that it's trying to reach. Consider these words from Spurgeon. I want to quote it at length. This is classic Spurgeon. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world and her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. Spurgeon wrote these words in the 1800s. How much more more worldliness is there in this postmodern world where where many people would deny that the spiritual even exists? If Hagerstown Church is to continue to prosper, and I believe that by God's grace, we are prospering. There are so many things to praise the Lord for as he works in this church. But if we're to continue to prosper, one of the things we need to make sure is that we are being distinct from the world. Making sure that the things that we love are not the things that the world loves. And looking at our hearts and examining and repenting of anything that we might find that is not pleasing. Thirdly, a worldly church cheats on her husband. A worldly church cheats on her husband. The church is Christ's bride. We talk about that a lot. Ephesians 5, the church is Christ's bride. He died for her. He serves her. He loves her. He cherishes her. He's fully and completely devoted to his bride. We see in Ezekiel that we have been eternally betrothed to God, and we're never going to be abandoned. We're always going to be experiencing his steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. This is the testament of God uh, towards us. But a worldly church sees all that has been done for her 
and all the affection and love and care that God has for her and then deems it better to cheat on God and to be unfaithful. A worldly church really commits adultery against God and against her groom. And this is what James is referring to in James 4. Again, this should be on the screen as well. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, John's not mincing world, or James is not mincing words here either. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This temptation to commit spiritual adultery, which we're talking about here, has always been something that the church is prone to do. The church is prone to do this. What's come thou fount say? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when we sing those words, we need to recognize that we're not just prone to wonder and leave, and then that's it. We're really prone to wonder and leave and then turn to something else. That's what that, those words are really saying. That we're turning to some other affection. That we're taking our eyes off of God. And in some sense, we are committing adultery against him by turning to something here on the earth. And so the admonition for us this morning is to keep our affections watched. Keep looking at our affections. Discern whether or not our affections for God are growing or our affections for the world are growing. Again, may Hagerstown Church remain faithful in its relationship with God. Number four, a worldly church takes its eyes off the prize. A worldly church takes its eyes off the prize. What is the prize? The prize is God himself. Being forever in his presence, worshiping him for all eternity. And, and this is what Paul is striving for to attain in Philippians 3. He's, and he calls us to strive for as well. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, consider where your citizenship lies. It's not in the world, but it's outside of the world. It's in heaven itself, where we are sons and daughters. Don't take your eyes off the prize. To do so is to be like the world, to set our minds on, on things that are below, to set our minds on earthly things. Remember, we're just passing through. This is not our home. We await a much, much, much better home. Fifth and finally, as we consider the fruit of worldliness, a worldly church passes away. A worldly church passes away. If you were following along with my really quick exposition of 1 John 2, you may have noticed that we didn't look at verse 17. 
John writes, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. So what is John getting at here? Let's finish the exposition here. What is he getting at? I think what John's doing is that he's using a simple bit of logic, given his understanding of who God is and, and what has been revealed. He's using logic to help his readers not love the world. And what, what's the logic? Why should you, Christian, not love the world or the things in the world? And John's logic dictates that this is true because the world is not always, always going to be here. That's the logic. The world is passing away with all of its desires. So why live in such a way as to suggest that the world and its desires are to be the primary purpose and aim of life, to call back to our definition, if the world is destined for destruction and for a remaking? Peter echoes a similar logic in his, in his letters. He, he gives this conclusion. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a, it's a spiritual logic. The world is not always going to be here in its state. And thus we have action to do. Worldliness has an expiration date. Worldly churches will pass away because the world is passing away. If you drive around our city, you're going to see countless churches that are passing away. Might I make the argument that the reason for the decay of of so many churches, not just in Hagerstown, but really in the West right now, is because it can be boiled down to worldliness. Now, we can discuss the specific reasons that pertain to each individual local church, but in some way, these churches that are passing away have taken their eyes off of God and placed them on, here, on these things here below in some way, in some respect. At some point in their history, there became a, or there began a slow, maybe even imperceptible at first, drift and, and redirection of their gaze from God to this world. Maybe it looked like preservation and exaltation of, of the building. Maybe that became top priority for a church. Maybe politics replaced the gospel. Maybe human reasoning obscured the, the will of God and pragmatism became the new word of God. Maybe church membership became more about status than actual spiritual need. Whatever the case may be, worldliness destroys churches. Maybe slowly, but it is surely. But John, there's hope here, because John gives us hope at the end of his passage this morning. In verse 17, there is a way to avoid passing away with the world and its desires. And there's a way for churches to remain vibrant Lord willing and healthy and and fruitful. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is John's answer to the problem of, of passing away. Do the will of God. That sounds so simple. Do the will of God. 
Thanks, John. Turn your eyes upwards, is what he's saying. Turn your eyes upwards, away from the world, away from its desires, and towards the upward call of God. Turn your eyes to him, follow him, be obedient to him, desire him. And this is not just the counsel of John, but it's the counsel of Paul and James and Peter and the entire New Testament. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Peter, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to keep away from worldly desires which wage war against your soul. Perhaps you're thinking of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If I had an official main idea for the sermon this morning, would it not just be verse 2 of Colossians 3? Set your minds on things above, not on things below. Church, let us put to death what is earthly in us, what remains in us that is earthly, and, and, and abide with God forever. Before I go any further and, and seek to, to end, end the sermon and conclude this message, I would be remiss if I didn't seek to offer some kind of application for us, right? We don't want to just explain the scripture, but we want to apply it as well. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, you desire to set your minds on things that are above. Again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit that has caused you to have new desires, desires of things that are above. But there's also a part of each one of us that really wants the exact opposite. Do you believe that? Do you experience that? There's a part of us that, that wants to set your mind or set our minds on, on things that are below, not above. There's a part of us that wants to be worldly, that enjoys being worldly. Church, do you feel that war that rages inside of you? The war between the flesh and the spirit constantly doing battle against each other. If you're a Christian, the war is evidence of your salvation and assurance because there's a spirit that's warring against your flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Flesh, They're being opposed to each other. So if this is true, and there's a war going on in each side, and inside of each one of us as Christians, and this is true, then how should we live? How should we proceed given this war, given this fact that we still have indwelling sin and indwelling desires and, and indwelling worldliness? I want to offer you three, three uh, bits of application here this morning. Number one, we should seek to grow in our dedication and capability and personal discipline. We should seek to grow in our dedication and capability in personal discipline. If that application point sounds familiar, 
It should, because it comes right out of our member directory and prayer guide. In fact, it's point number, number five. Grow in our dedication and capability and personal discipline. Quick shout out to, to Micah Shadden. Uh, they're not with us this morning, but Micah Shadden, who's our deaconess of member care, she works hard to produce these once a quarter. It's an accurate list of, of the members of Hagerstown Church, and this is a tool that you can use to continue praying for our church, uh, using your family worship, using your individual devotional times, and lots of other applications as well. But if you've not picked up your next one for this quarter, it's right through the store, through the hallway. Again, if you see Micah, give her some thanks. She works really hard on that. But, but why should we, as Christians, be disciplined in this way? What's the point of being better disciplined Christians? The answer is because by living a disciplined life, it leads to a better enjoyment of Jesus. By living a disciplined life, it leads to a better enjoyment of Jesus. What I'm about to say may sound familiar to some of you because it was given at the men's prayer breakfast a few weeks ago, but I thought that it, the truth of, of, of this was needed for not just the men in our church, but for the church at large. Our hearts are, are bent towards enjoyment of the world. We don't have to try to love the pleasures of the world. How many of you pray each day, Lord, please help me to love the world? Please help me to be a better disciplined world lover? That's just not true. We, we don't have to discipline ourselves to do that. We don't have to discipline ourselves to seek after the world. It comes by default. But, and I mentioned this before, this new birth has awakened in us new desires and new enjoyments, namely an enjoyment in a person, Jesus of Nazareth, and now God is calling us as Christians to live a disciplined life, not for the sake of discipline, not for the sake of earning God's favor, not for the sake of aiming to, to please him that he would let us into his heaven, but in order that we would enjoy Jesus better in the already not yet. The phrase that means that we are a part of God's kingdom, we've been purchased by, by Jesus' blood, we're part of God's kingdom, and yet we still live in this world. We still have fallen desires. We don't have a glorified body. In glory, we're not going to have any need to pray that we would grow in our devotion and capability and personal discipline because we'll be perfected. We'll be completely glorified. In the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed to enjoy Jesus with immeasurable fullness. As I consider all the, the fruit of the gospel and what it means for my life personally, this idea of glorification, this truth of glorification, it's becoming more and more precious to me as I consider what it will be like to have a new body, and not just a new body that doesn't decay and doesn't break its leg or, or stub its toe, but a new body with new desires, completely sanctified desires. If I'm able to not sin now, but I'm still able to sin, to think that one day I will be in a state where I can't sin. Man, praise God for that glorification. It's, I'm treasuring that more and more. But, but we're not there yet. 
We are not to that point. Jesus has not returned. So in this life, God is calling us to grow in personal discipline because we have a flesh that needs disciplining. We have a flesh that needs disciplining. Our humanness in its current state, its current state, gets in the way of of us enjoying Jesus better. Our flesh gets in the way. The world and its desires obscure our vision of Jesus. Satan and his demons constantly employ their many devices to hinder our joy in the gospel, to hinder our pleasure in God himself. But the Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit to produce in us a life of discipline, which is really what the Bible calls self-control. That's what discipline is. It's the self-control not just to avoid things, but to do things. So growing in our self-control, growing in our personal discipline to pray and, and read our Bibles and meaningfully fellowship with one another, these are pathways to enjoying Jesus better. These are tools in our tool belt, tool belt to win the war that rages inside of us. A way to enjoy Jesus better and a way to love the world less. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, Endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying ourselves in the way of allurement. Put ourselves in the way of allurement. The means of grace, of which there are many, including praying and reading in the scriptures and fellowshipping and many other things, are ways of allurement that God has given us so that we may enjoy his son better. Now, I mentioned meaningful fellowship, and this leads us to point number two, application point number two. We should make it our aim to stir up one another's affections. Make it our aim, our goal, our desire to stir up one another's affections. So just as God has given us the gift and grace of personal discipline, he also gave us the church. Pastor Chris talked last week that the church is not God's plan B or C or D, but it's God's plan A for our growth. It's God's plan A for our sanctification. It's God's plan A for our growth in enjoyment of Jesus. Those that God has has placed us amongst have been providentially, which means God's sovereignty in work, God has providentially placed people around you brothers and sisters, in order that you may be stirred up to love Jesus better. This is his purpose, to help help us, help each other, to push out the remaining worldliness that we all have, the remaining love for the world and the things of the world that still reside in us. The church has been designed to help us take that worldliness and put it away, never to be taken again to help us put to death the deeds of the body. That is not a command for individual Christians alone. That is a command for the church at large, to help each other put to death the deeds of the body, put to death that which remains worldly in you. One pastor says that the church is our greatest weapon. There's a militaristic phrase there. Our greatest weapon in our fight for satisfaction in Christ. That's the church. When our hearts are cold and our ears are closed, God's community sings to us, prays with us, prays for us, reads the scriptures with us. And all 
through all of that, God is opening up our wooden hearts. The church is designed to stoke our affections for God, even when our fire begins to grow low. It's been said behind this pulpit that the tendency of fire is to go out, and, and that's true. And that's why the church is such an amazing, amazing gift that God has given us. So let's see to it that, that this fire that has been created in the, the hearts of the members of Hagerstown Church would not grow low, that it would not go out, but that we would continually stir up the affections that we have for Christ. And that's the point of things like life groups and D groups and, and Bible doctrine groups and, and cop, cups of coffee and all these things that, that we, we want to promote here at Hagerstown Church. We want to promote them because we believe that our affections need to be stirred. Our affections need to be stirred. We need to love Jesus more. We need to enjoy him better. And so let's work together as you consider your brothers and sisters who are in this room, those who are not with us this morning, consider how we can stir up each other to enjoy Jesus better. As we seek to set our minds on things above and not below, and as we close this morning, I'm reminded that we are often exhorted from behind this pulpit to turn our eyes to Christ, to turn our eyes to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to consider Jesus. And that shouldn't really come as a surprise because we're in the book of Hebrews most weeks, and that's really the main point of the whole book. Look to Jesus. He's better. Consider him. Trust in him. But maybe, maybe if you're being honest, you, you hear that little phrase, look to Jesus, and you, you wonder, is it really that simple? Is it really that simple? Maybe you're, maybe you're just a little tired of hearing that phrase and you want something more. Look to Jesus. Can it really be that simple? Why are our pastors continually beating the same drum up here week after week? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Does Pastor Joss have nothing better to say? No better forms of application or no better conclusions? Just look to Jesus? Well, as we look at our final point of application, I do stand in solidarity with our pastors here this morning who regularly fill this pulpit. And the final point of application for this sermon is we should look to Jesus. We should look to Jesus. Why look to him? Why is that the answer? Is it not because in looking to Jesus, the worldly desires that remain in us lose their power? John Owen said that when someone sets his affections upon the, cross, upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. Looking to Jesus causes the baits of sin to lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. Is it not because in looking to Jesus... The world loses its appeal. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Is it not because in taking hold of Jesus, the world is revealed to be fleeting? Fleeting. 
Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Is it not because in considering Jesus, we can break free from the charms of the world that ensnare us? You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us, says C.S. Lewis. In the arms of Jesus, there are indeed 10,000 charms. Let us be charmed by Jesus, not the world. Let us look upwards in this life, not downwards. Let us set our minds on, on things above rather than things that are on the earth. Let us not be filled with a love for the world or, or the things of the world, but be filled with the love of the Father, the love of the Father that's been secured by the blood of his Son. Church, let's pray. Father, we, we desperately desire for you to do a work in us that uh, we would grow in our love for you, that our love for you would be fanned into flame and our love for this world and the things of it would indeed grow strangely dim. Father, we ask that you would reveal in us any areas of worldliness and that we, through your kindness, would be led to repentance and a renewed sense of enjoyment in you, in you, Jesus. Lord, may we be a church that looks at the world and desires to see the world come to know you and not a church who looks at the world and desires to be a part of it. Father, we, we praise your name and, and we, we thank you that you have done a work in us that has caused us to look above and not below. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.